We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Will Erskine booking the guests. In the newsroom, Donna Weeks and Dave Woodard. It's all fun and games for our Prime Minister. Enjoying a nice bungee jump for the cameras. What did you do today? Here's Scott Thompson. He's a cheeky boy. He's a cheeky. Where'd he get that? It's his mother. Good afternoon. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson Hamilton. Today, we're all here. Thanks for joining us. Feel free to jump into the fun. Love to hear from you. Send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. All right, another jam-packed show. Lots going on. SpaceX blows up another rocket. Well, no, let me rephrase that. That didn't sound right, did it? Uh, SpaceX sends up another rocket with NASA. Remember the one they did like a month or so ago with nobody in it? Same sort of thing, except now they got some people in it and including a Russian astronaut on board and on their way to uh, the International Space Station. So isn't that fascinating, considering where the world is uh, with Russia? There they are, uh, above the Earth and, you know, uh, apparently above all the BS as well. Hang on, what's that? Oh, we're just getting reports in now. It's Oh, no, they they seem to be hanging the Russian astronaut outside the space capsule. That's not night. Oh, hang on. Never mind. That's a fake report. Nothing happening like that. Uh, it's fabulous that, uh, you know, you get above the Earth's atmosphere and uh, all of a sudden the politics doesn't matter. Uh, we'll talk about that coming up uh, a little later on. Gas prices on their way up. Boy, it wasn't that long ago. People were saying, see, the demand is down. They're all coming down. We're approaching winter, people. Uh, we'll talk about that coming up a little later on. Credit card fees. Uh, these were always there, but now the uh, merchant has the option of adding it to your bill. Where does that put everything? Especially now when you get a, you know, the thing handed to you for the tip at the end of your dinner, it's, I think it starts at 73%, doesn't it? Hang on. Oh, that's wrong too. I'm kidding. Uh, so yeah, it'll be interesting to see where all that goes. Hockey Canada still in hot water. We'll talk about that. Uh, and music wise, Loretta Lynn passes away yesterday at the age of 90. We'll talk about her, uh, coming up a little later on. Also, also, uh, the Beatles releasing uh, on this day back in 1962, Love uh, Love Me Do, the 60th anniversary of that, uh, wasn't released uh, in uh, the United States for another two years. But uh, their first big hit was number one by the time it came to North America a couple of years later. All right, all that's going on. We're going to give you a little bit of an update. Uh, Justin Trudeau, uh, Trudeau has taken off the... Uh, uh, the headgear and such in uh, the harness and uh, was talking uh, in regard the other day to help uh, for Fiona and even uh, the victims of Fiona and even those still trying to get their power back on. Flanked by colleagues from Ottawa, the Prime Minister visits the Canadian Hurricane Centre in Dartmouth, getting a tour and understanding of the track of the storm that pummeled parts of Atlantic Canada earlier in the day, announcing $300 million for the Hurricane Fiona Recovery Fund. This funding will support projects to repair and rebuild storm-damaged critical infrastructure such as wharves, support the clean-up of fishing gear so that boats and marine life can once again safely navigate these waters, of course, help local businesses and communities rebuild and recover. 
also saying it will help people uninsured or underinsured with damages. The money is in addition to the disaster financial assistance arrangements, federal money that covers 90% of eligible provincial expenses. As for the new money announced Tuesday... This fund will be there for anyone who is not covered uh, by any of the other programs. All right, and uh, that is uh, the Prime Minister speaking in regard to the situation still out east. Uh, Obviously, uh, an incredible storm, uh, Fiona, uh, Hurricane Fiona, uh, taking out powers in large parts of uh, the east and still trying to get things cleaned up uh, out there. Um, Switch gears a little bit. SpaceX uh, launching that rocket today along with uh, help from NASA. And uh, bizarre that uh, on one hand we're speaking about that, and on the other we're talking about Elon Musk and his never-ending, I don't know what it is, a domino game with uh, Twitter and whether he's buying it, whether he isn't. It's fascinating that he can be involved, and I was going to say frivolous, but when you think about it, it's mass communication, so it's a lot of control. Uh, and on the other hand, look at what he's done with SpaceX and, 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 and advance that program. Uh, bizarre, but that's usually the way geniuses are. Here's uh, ABC's Scott Nover on Twitter and Elon. Elon Musk proposed this deal to buy Twitter, and uh, Twitter agreed to it. And then not many months later, Elon Musk reneged and said that he was you know, out of the deal, and Twitter is suing him to actually enforce it. Um, so what changed it's not totally clear other than that fact that Musk doesn't really have a great case, and maybe that was kind of dawning on him. Yesterday, Elon Musk's lawyers sent a letter to Twitter saying, you know what, actually, we'll do the deal at the agreed-upon price of $54.20 a share, and as long as you you know, drop the litigation, we're good. Um, and Twitter is probably going to accept that because that's what they're going to court to get anyway. So uh, how bizarre is it that we've got, uh, you know, this sort of shenanigans going on with Elon Musk and whatever is going on with Twitter and whether he if this all goes through, I don't know, and do people really care? And yet, on the other hand, the other big story of the day is NASA and SpaceX uh, joining uh, joining uh, their resources and such to, to launch a a rocket and this is all part of reestablishing the moon as a base and then going off to mars and elon musk and his company spacex has has very much uh, contributed to that in, in in lowering costs and blah 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 and i mean you look at the same with electric vehicles i mean elon musk was uh, commercially making electric vehicles long before uh, any other the major or, uh, auto company started talking about it so you look at that side and you're, you're thinking wow brilliance what is this guy he's just you know it's amazing the kind of person and then on the other you've got this sort of wackiness going on whether it's wackiness or not or uh obviously just great business decisions um with twitter and the whole donald trump thing and whatever and so it's almost as if, if there's as much hype as there is genius and where do you draw the balance there but uh two reasons elon musk in the news today and both at opposite ends of the spectrum but that's the way it, i guess it rolls when you're uh, a genius all right let's move on i'm uh, gonna talk to covid elvis who has helped so many and now he needs our help we'll talk to him coming up uh, moments from now 
I might, uh, you might remember, and uh, this is really the only reason to go back and even talk about these days, because this is one of the great stories that came out of it. Uh, you might remember a long time ago, at the very early stages of the pandemic, we saw on Facebook um, uh, a guy that was going around in an Elvis costume, and this is when we couldn't go out anywhere, and doing these performances on people's front porches, and ba-ba-ba-ba, ba-ba-ba-ba. Eventually, we end up talking to him, uh, and, and, cor- and COVID. Elvis's story evolves from there. And since then, this man who, who started singing in, in, in this in nursing homes, and then, of course, that got shut down due to, uh, obviously, the global pandemic, took it on the road and, and, and in turn has raised tons and tons for the food bank and money and in product and such. And now COVID Elvis finds himself uh, in a situation. And it, it's just... You know, it's amazing, number one, that, that Cameron did all this. It's amazing, number two, that the city is answering uh, and reacting for, for Cameron. Um, I'll let him tell you the story. I basically filled in pre. Cameron Caton is with us now, a.k.a. Covis El- uh, COVID Elvis, and on the line. Cameron, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Uh, it's great to hear from you again. Thanks, Scott. We're, we're, we're doing okay. We're uh, pulled over on the side of the highway. So, so tell us, Cameron, what happened? I mean, uh, what happened with your housing situation, and uh, and 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 let's go from there. Sure. Well, we live in a we live in a small building, and attached to that building is also a house that was uh, bought uh, in 2020 by someone else after the um, original owners had passed away. And uh, in uh, July the 31st, he gave everybody. Uh, the landlord, that is, gave everybody a, a, an N12, uh, the three occupants of the apartment building, and uh, the the lady that lived in the house. Uh, he, I guess, was saying that the building was sold on the condition that all the uh, units be empty and vacant for the new owner, for the new buyer, wanted to move his family in or something of that nature, and he gave us an N12, which is a, a 60-day eviction notice. Is that legal? Um, sure, I guess if you file it and take it to the court and whatever. But uh, subsequent to that, um, fifteen days later, he he, he uh, gave me a little thing saying that he wanted uh, with another fella to inspect our apartment to make sure it was livable. And uh, so on the fifteenth of August, they came in. Uh, this fella took a picture of each of the bedrooms and then they left. So I just didn't think much of it. 21 days later, he brought me a piece of paper. Uh, 21 days from the original 60-day eviction notice, he brought me a piece of paper that basically said that the or he found the apartment to be uh, unsafe to live in and we had 15 days to leave. Oh Which, man! I'm not. I don't know where that came from. I never saw uh, anything from a city saying that they'd inspected our apartment to say it wasn't safe to live in. And uh, September 14th, uh, 10 o'clock in the morning. What's that? We didn't leave. I mean, he gave us 60 days, but we didn't leave after those 15 days because um, it wasn't filed property. I don't even think it was a, a legal document of any sort. It looked like just something that was drawn up and then photocopied and handed to us. So, um, and then on September the 14th, 
I happened to notice uh, uh, the the landlord and and a guy in a uniform, like a bailiff or sheriff, like a bailiff's outfit kind of like thing, mm-hmm. uh, police officer looking type of guy, um, locked the fella upstairs who was uh, occupying one of the gar- the garage that was his space uh, initially uh, when he first leased uh, the place twelve years ago. Locked him out, saying that he was occupying a space illegally, and uh, he was uh, out of his garage uh, on the property. He was occupying that illegally, and that he owed him $24,000. So I was reading this thing. So he locks him out, and the bailiff comes over to where I'm standing, gives me a piece of paper, says that I'm illegally occupying a commercial space, and I had 45 minutes to pack up my things and get out. Oh, man. Yeah. So, <laughs> I, I don't know what to tell you. Chantel's here, too. She can tell you the same story. So uh, then you then what happened? You obviously left? Well, he had a, he had a locksmith with him. He, he presented some piece of paper that said that whatever it said, I don't know where that came from either. Uh, it wasn't anything from the city. Uh, he just hired a bailiff from uh, a, a, a bailiff right. company or something. So have you taken any legal recourse? Is there anything you can do here, Cameron? Well, we've, we've um, uh, so here, here's the kicker, Scott. If you, um, not only were we getting kicked out, but on this little piece of paper, it said that we had five days to, to make arrangements to get our property. I said, okay, that's great. When can we get our property? And he says, well, you, you have to pay us $175 an hour plus HST for us to uh, unlock the door and let you get your things. Oh my God! So that cost us one thousand one hundred eighty-six dollars and fifty cents to 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 pre-book, and I had to eat. I had to e-transfer this money in order to secure the time, and I was supposed to, you know, do it that day, or or he couldn't guarantee my time, and we'd lose all our possessions. So I I ordered, I, I booked six hours. I paid him almost twelve hundred dollars to whomever. Oh Oh, man. And, uh, yeah. And so have you... The guy upstairs, the guy upstairs so had to book some time, and, and I helped him the next day. After I was evicted, I helped my neighbor upstairs the very next day get his stuff out of the garage. cost him about $750. So have you talked to anybody from the city on this, Cameron, or anybody legally got any advice that way? Yeah, well, I, I hired I hired a uh, paralegal who, who uh, has tried to contact his lawyer, but he kind of just ignores us, so... Um, I guess we'll just hang on. I, I contacted the tribunal actually, who hung up on me and told me it was uh, wasn't their business, uh, which was I got hung up on twice. Um, so I, I contacted a, a, a paralegal, and uh, he's he's working on it right now. So Cameron, let me ask you first: How long have you lived where you were living, or where you just got evicted uh, from? Four and a half years. Uh, in total, uh, under the new uh, uh, landlord, under his ownership, 29 months. So uh, you said that you had uh, contacted a paralegal. Where is that? What, what, what sort of, what did they say to you? Well, um, it, it, was, it was kind of uh, a strange circumstance. When I, when, I, when I was talking to him and I was uh, removing my things from the apartment, uh, he said, oh, stop what you're doing and put your stuff back in there. This is completely illegal. Mm. 
And and so I, I kind of told the bailiffs, hey, we're not leaving. And uh, But the truth is, um, pick your battles, so to speak, and, and, and under the circumstance and, and all the ugliness that was going on, would you really want to stay there? And besides, I had 30 people show up, uh, trucks and cars and vans and, and trailers and uh, 30, 35 people, and, and we had our, our place picked up and, and just completely empty in under six hours so where are you living now cameron take dishes home and uh you, you, you know, don't have to d- yeah don't give us an address but just you, you know have you found a, a place is basically what i'm asking oh no we we uh at the moment we're we, we stayed with a, a friend for uh, uh, about 10 days uh uh somebody else took our kittens in we've uh now moved on uh while we still try to find a, a, a suitable place for what we do uh, we're an hour and a half outside of Hamilton at the moment. We're actually on our way to Hamilton because uh, you can knock good people down, but you can't keep them there. And we're on our way to do a uh, pop-up food Elvis, uh, COVID Elvis food drive in a park. Uh, of course, figure that's that's figure that's the way you roll, man. That's Sorry, the way you roll. How how much money? How much pounds of food have you raised just since this um, whole thing started? Over seventy-six thousand pounds at the moment. So. 35 over 35 uh, 37 tons so obviously people have showed up as you said with trailers to help you move and such oh yeah um and and, <laughs> I mean, and so so you're feeling the love back absolutely and and i and i have a, a little thing and I'll, I'll say it quick do good by others and others will do good by you because kindness is king so what are your plans now? I mean, is have you have you are you just looking for a place? Is have you got any uh have you you know any luck or, or are you just at this point just looking or are you trying yeah. to figure out what happened where you just got evicted from and do you want to go back there? No heck no, we'd never go back and then and, and live under someone's roof like that. Uh yeah. uh guys if they did it once, what what stops them from doing it again? So um no, we haven't found anything in Hamilton. I mean, sadly, we're not the only ones, like you said earlier, that have found themselves in this type of position because um, greed is out there and uh, people are getting renovated or whatever you want to call it on a regular basis because the rent costs are astronomical. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, to rent a, just the top portion of a house that uh, people want anywhere from twenty three to almost $3,000 a month, and then they have the lower level for rent. And, uh, you know, it, it's really difficult to find a place that uh, would be suitable for us because a lot of, and affordable, because um, this is all we do. We don't have daytime jobs. This is what myself and Chantel do. We, we go out and sing. That's what we yeah. do. Um, so... Uh, people sending us, you know, oh, this high rise and well, it'd be. I mean, I'm not, I'm not 20 anymore, so carrying uh, hundreds of pounds of foods in and out of a high rise building would be a little difficult. Right. <laughs> so you know what? So Cameron, so Cameron, yeah. tell us what you are looking for, uh, and you know, you can be vague, but uh, and maybe somebody out there listening can hook you up somehow. That would be awesome. Basically, what we're looking for is. Uh, 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 it would be nice to have a house. It doesn't have to be at the Taj Mahal. It would be nice to be able to park a trailer, because we have two now, uh, with the kindness of somebody bought us a new trailer to haul food, uh, to have a garage, maybe, and uh, be able to do what we keep, 
what we continue to do. Two bedrooms minimum. Uh, Chantel has an 18-year-old son that lives with us, and right now he's obviously displaced too, and currently staying with his father. So, um, so do you do you have to be in Hamilton, or are you usually outside of the city? We're okay to be, uh, you know, Cayuga, Dun, well, you know, Cayuga, Caledonia. Yeah. You know, an hour away is max. Right now, we're we're about yeah. an hour and forty minutes away. So we're coming to do, like I said, a food drive over at. Uh, Scenic Park, Parkette, 609 Scenic Drive tonight at 6 o'clock, if anybody wants to show up. And, uh, you know, we got a almost a four-hour round trip, but we figure it's Thanksgiving weekend, and I'm sure one of the, the, the food banks could, could use some support, and, and that's what we do. Uh, so getting back to the legal aspects and the paralegal, what's the next steps for that? Did he say, or they say, sorry? Yeah, well, he said he, he, he'll... he'll file uh, a grievance with with the landlord and and uh you know in 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 how he behaved or how he circumvented the system in order to get us out in the, in the manner in which he did um because really it wasn't anything legal there was no tribunal there was no no anything filed with a court the bailiff wasn't court appointed from what i understand and uh we were in a residential apartment and have been. It's been residential for 12 years, and he called it a commercial space. And wow, have there. you talked to anybody? Have you talked to anybody in the city uh, as of yet? Or is, I guess that's up to the paralegal. Yeah, I mean, he'll get in touch with. I'm sure the appropriate uh, uh, through the appropriate um, channels, uh, if you might. Um, I'm not getting myself involved in that because I don't I'm not yeah. a legal guy I mean I'm smart enough to know that what happened to us uh, wasn't normal and, mm. and just was wrong on every level I mean you're, you're talking about a, a man his, his girlfriend her, her son and their two kittens uh, here's 45 minutes you need to get out we're locking the door see you later. yeah no that's BS that's for sure all right so six yeah, o'clock tonight horrible. six o'clock tonight at uh, scenic park that's how you're helping out park how can at, people park at how can you help yeah. uh, or sorry how can people help out you what can we do to help you well we got to go fund me um uh, it, it it literally cost me $4,000 to get evicted. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's insane because we had to find a storage unit. I had to buy a, a U-Haul truck and, and had to uh, uh, hire a, a legal uh, counsel. And uh, I lost all kinds of revenue because I couldn't go sing for the places that I was going to sing at because, obviously, uh, it was a very traumatic experience. And uh, we, we were running around for, for five days trying to sort our lives out after the uh, 14th eviction. So. All right. Well, uh, 6 o'clock tonight at Scenic Park, Ed, and if you can help out Cameron Caton, a.k.a. COVID Elvis, uh, hit the GoFundMe page. And if you know or you know somebody with a place or what have you, uh, and again, I'm sure this is happening for many uh, residents throughout the city, especially in a post-pandemic world, uh, by all means, help out if you can. Cameron, good luck with all of this, and uh, I'm sure, well, you'll be singing soon. Uh, it's amazing oh. how music can change things. Have a great show tonight. Yeah, thank you very much. If I can just uh, shoot one more thing. Hey, listen, Hamilton, uh, we're going to be down at Stone Walls on, on the 26th of uh, 7th. 
27th of October doing a little show on a Thursday night, a Halloween costume party. I'll be dressed up as probably Elvis. And uh, it's at uh, 7.30 down at Stonewalls. All right, COVID Elvis continues on and raising money for uh, food banks and such if you can help them out. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. You may or may not know this, but uh, and I'll let Ian Lee explain this to you, but uh, there's a fee for using a credit card. Normally, uh, the merchants pick this up, but starting Thursday, businesses in Canada will be able to pass credit card fees on to their customers. Uh, the uh, change is the result of a multi-million dollar class action settlement involving Visa, MasterCard over what we are now known as interchar- interchange or swipe fees. Uh, the money credit card companies, banks, and payment processors call uh, collect from the merchants every uh, transaction. So to talk more about all of this and what it all means to you, Ian Lee, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carlton, he's here now. Ian, thank you for the time. Hope all is well. Doing well. Uh, thanks very much, Scott. So we remember Visa and MasterCard uh, uh, involved legally in all of this. How has it shaken down? How has it changed things for the consumer? Um, you've asked a very good question, and it, it's such a, it, to most people, it's very complicated, but it isn't. I've done two papers on this subject um, for the McDonald Laurie Institute think tank. Full disclosure, I'm a former banker. And no, uh, banks do not pay me to say this. I, I just happen to know the payment system because I worked in a bank for nine years. And, and I wrote these two papers on uh, uh, revolving around the cost of cash. There's an urban legend out there. And then I'm, I'm going to answer your question. So let me just build the case, then I'll answer your question. There's an urban legend, and I've heard it from many, many small businesses. And God bless them. We need lots of small businesses. And uh, they face a very, very tough time, you know, uh, you know, they don't have a lot of capital and their costs are going up all the time and so forth. But there's this urban legend out there that cost cash as a payment instrument is free and credit cards and debit cards are expensive. And to anybody out there running a small business listening right now, you're about to tear out your hair and get very angry at me because I'm going to tell you, you are flat out wrong. Flat out wrong. Cash is expensive. Why? Because there's some bad people in this world that want to go to your business from time to time and do bad things to you, maybe beat up one of your employees to steal the cash. No, no, it doesn't happen every day. You're quite right. It doesn't. But as a consequence, you have to make the assumption it's going to happen every day. So you have to take all kinds of precautions that nobody costs and charges up as the cost of cash. You have to have two people count the cash at all times. Standard 101 about cash is you must have two people counting it at all times. You can't have one person counting it by themselves because then they can steal it. You must have special arrangements with the bank with the night depository and they charge you extra for that. And if you're bringing in a lot of cash, the bank will charge you a fee for administering because cash is expensive. And then on top of that, you have to have insurance with the insurance company. So there's all these hidden costs that businesses do not count up as the cost of cash. They see the fee they have to pay to the Visa or to MasterCard. And then, of course, some people say, well, why should I be paying a fee? Well, because clearing systems cost money. And the banks that don't and the Visa system it has a very expensive multi-billion dollar clearing system, all those high-speed computers that connect up every business everywhere in the world that takes Visa and MasterCard 
are hooked up to very high-speed computers. They have to have all kinds of cybercrime experts and so forth. So I have long, long argued that I think taking credit cards or debit cards is downright cheap compared to cash. I've said this to many businesses. If you're still taking cash, uh, you just don't understand the true cost of cash. Now, so, in other words, you think this is justified. Uh, why is this an issue now? Because it's uh, they've been lobbying uh, the CFA, the Confederation of Independent Business. I'm normally very sympathetic to them, but this is one issue I disagree with. Um, and uh, they were lobbying uh, because it's visible. The amount they have to pay to the bank, the, the businesses, for the uh, when they go and deposit every day. So they deposit all their receipts, some's cash and some is uh, chits, credit card chits, as I call them. And they add them up and then the bank, they actually deduct the cost of uh, accepting those cars and clearing those chits through the banking system. And so they lobbied parliament and parliament changed the law and allowed them, they can now charge it back. What I am suggesting that is the following. And by the way, before you think I'm selling credit cards, this has been studied by the Federal Reserve in the States and the Bank Canada. The cheapest payment instrument is debit cards. They uh, cost less to the business and uh, they mm. their processing costs are just really, really cheap. So if small business says, I really hate paying the visa, well, then just insist on everybody pay with debit cards if you want to take that risk. My argument, my argument to every business is, look, you're outsourcing all those risks when you take visa or, or MasterCard or debit cards. You don't have that risk anymore. Okay. So if as a result of this, will we see more use of debit rather than credit cards? Because credit possibly. cards will have a certain amount of security too. Uh, you're absolutely right. And uh, uh, the studies I've seen, and there are some early studies out, that where the uh, business, it's a business to business business, they will charge these additional fees because they can still bury it in the cost of goods. Hmm. But where the, it's a, a retailer. So all those retailers out there, you're, right. the, the evidence thus far is retailers are much more reluctant to pass it on to me, the consumer customer, because yeah. you don't correctly, correctly, the small business does not want to alienate the customer. And mm -hmm. so we may see a differential response. B2B businesses will pass it on because they can hide it, basically. And the B2C customers, all your little moms and pop stores where you go and pay with a visa, they're going to be more reluctant, the data shows, to pass that fee on to the consumer. And I think that's smart business. For the lousy one and a half percent or something, you really want to annoy your customers so that they don't come back and lose the sale forever and ever, the repeat customer business. It's a trivial cost. It's And yes, it's annoying, but it's still trivial. And you don't have to worry. Nobody tries to go to a, to a small business and steal the credit card shits. They're not negotiable. So they're of no value to the criminal, whereas cash is really valuable. Whereas if you get rid of your cash, so all you've got is debit chits and credit card chits, you're not going to get ripped off. You're not going to get robbed, including some of your own employees from time to time. So I argue, and I've argued this in my paper, was is that when you net out all the costs of cash and the risks and the extra commercial insurance and the night depositories and the double counting of cash, I think that taking credit cards or debit cards is superior to cash. And I walk my own talk. I carry, Scott, zero currency. And I started 15 years ago. I carry zero currency at all times everywhere. I even Italy. put a $3 coffee on my credit card. 
Ian Lee, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, changes in credit card fees and possibly being passed on to you or somewhere along the line. Ian, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thanks very much, Scott. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. This funding will support projects to repair and rebuild storm-damaged critical infrastructure such as wharves, support the cleanup of fishing gear so that boats and marine life can once again safely navigate these waters, of course help local businesses and communities rebuild and recover. That is the Prime Minister speaking uh, out east. State of emergency declared in northern Nova Scotia. Thousands still without power on Prince Edward Island. Uh, more than 16,000 customers in Nova Scotia. Prince Edward Island still without electricity 11 days after Fiona hits. Uh, that was back in September 23rd. Uh, to talk more about all of this, um, can you be ready for events like this? Um, many are saying we have to start and find out what that plan is. Uh, but also... After it's passed, uh, cleaning it all up. And certainly we're seeing uh, Florida go through that with uh, Ian as well. Uh, and obviously the Prime Minister announcing uh, $300 million relief fund for uh, the Maritimes. Let's bring in Daniel Perry, consultant Summa Strategies. He's with us now. Daniel, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Thanks, Scott. I am. I hope you are too. Yeah, thanks so much for the time. Uh, your thoughts, I mean, uh, obviously these are disasters. I'm, I'm not sure how prepared or, or, and again, the East Coast, the East has been hit with these many times, and if there's anybody prepared for them, it, it's they certainly are. But how would you grade the government and how we reacted to all of this uh, in a situation like this? I think, broadly speaking, the government has done a, a fairly good job at responding to this. It's never mm-hmm. easy to respond to it, um, but they were quick to send in troops. They were quick to help get hydro crews down there. And to be honest with you, it is a lot of money uh, at $300 million over two years. But I think the people that are there that are looking to rebuild their home, I, I think they're going to be okay with that. So I think as the rest of people in Canada, I think we'll, we can support them in that and kind of look at that $300 million and just kind of be happy that it's going to them. Um, many talking about how at this stage of the game they are still without power. I mean, obviously, we've seen storms like this hit Ontario as well, where so many poles are down, it just takes them forever to put them back up again. Uh, also, uh, the telecoms getting a bit of heat about this. Mm-hmm. What about the performance of uh, the utilities to get these up and running again? Utilities are always a challenge to get back up, especially in a disaster like this, and they are doing their best. Uh, That said, they can always do more, and I think going 11 days without having hydro is a little bit silly for a country like Canada. Uh, We have a lot of resources and a lot of ways to restore the power, so I think that's something the government should look at going forward, is if we know a storm's coming, how can we better prepare ourselves for that, and how can we make sure we have crews on standby and are ready to help tackle these challenges? Because I don't know about you, but I don't think I could make it a day without having hydro, let alone 11. Uh, that was certainly the number one complaint when we were chatting with them. <laughs> what else What else can we do? I mean, is it about preparation? Uh, to a certain extent, it's about preparation, and there is conversations going on now about uh, even inside the Canadian military to develop a strategic response to natural disasters because Canada, unfortunately, we've been seeing a, a rise in these lately, and it's never good when we have Canadians getting stranded. So I think it's a conversation that all governments need to entertain because it's just not a federal issue. It also relates to the provinces and municipalities as well. Uh, it's something that we can look to tackle because, like it or not, the climate in Canada is changing, uh, and we need to do a better job to address this. 
Daniel, who would decide how this money gets spent? Uh, so it comes down to the provinces for the most part. Uh, the federal government is giving the money and then they're using uh, the Atlantic Opportunities uh, Department to help sh- spread it out. But really comes down to the provinces. They know it best and they know where the money needs to go. So they're going to be the ones kind of pushing the pushing the play button on how this can be spent and how best to get into people. Uh, we've certainly seen seaside communities be literally mm-hmm. uh, removed, and and now the question is, do you rebuild there? Do you rebuild back on these floodplains? How do you make those decisions? That's a tough decision to make because at the end of the day, those are people's houses. Uh, that's what people call home. Uh, there's a lot of history there, uh, especially as we are facing a housing crisis. We cannot over, we cannot be too picky sometimes of where we build a house. That said, building on a floodplain, probably not the best idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that's something that individuals are going to have to make that decision to if they want to rebuild or not, or if they want to relocate. Because I, I, my sense is if it's happened once, it's very likely to happen again. All right. Many have chatted, uh, especially once we're switching gears here, uh, Daniel, by the way. Uh, <laughs> sorry to, to broadside you here. Um, <laughs> many thought once the Conservative Party found their leader um, and, and things um, got moving forward again, uh, it would still be quite a long time before another election would be called. Mm-hmm. Some even saying two years or so. Um, now uh, the Prime Minister goes bungee jumping and there's uh, <laughs> an article written by a journalist. It says, are we are we going to an election? Uh, what does this say? And what are your thoughts on an election? And is it re- is it related to a bungee <laughs> jump? Uh, I don't think bungee jumping has anything to do with it. I, I do hesitate to think what would happen if the prime minister buys a new pair of running shoes or goes for a run, what people might interpret that as. I, I think right now the NDP, they're happy to prop up the government. They finally have a seat at the table and they can push for progressive ideas that a lot of people usually look at them and laugh at them saying won't work. But now they have an ear of a government who's willing to dance with them. So I don't see an election happening anytime soon. I think most people, especially here in Ottawa, are quite happy uh, with the current arrangement. If you're in the opposition, not as much. But if you're in the NDP, this is probably the best it's going to be for a while. What about the prime minister? Because, you know, every so often he likes to, to try. What Do you think he's interested at all? I think he's always interested. No one likes being in a minority parliament, especially when you're in the government of power, because you can't do what you want. You have to actually have people agree with you. So I think there is an appetite for him to do it. But I think at the same time, he realizes we went back to the polls uh, just over a year ago and the results didn't really change that much. So it might not end well for him, especially if you're looking at the polls right now and how popular the CPC is getting. Uh, It might not be a good time for him to try to call an election when he might lose his job uh again i don't want to spend too much time on on singing in hotel lobbies and all that sort of thing uh but obviously i already have um should you be going budgie jumping before you go out east and announce a 300 million dollar fiona relief fund of all the dumb things the prime minister has done and i will admit that list is quite long i think we can give him a pass on going bungee jumping Uh, i think there's bigger issues to bring up with him in terms of his leadership ability than whether or not he's uh taking a deep dive uh that's our impression of it some citizens may say you know you might have bigger fish to fry than bungee jumping (laughs) response to that Uh, That's a fair criticism. Uh, At the end of the day, every leader is accountable. And the next time Canadians will have an opportunity to evaluate the credibility of Justin Trudeau will be an election. So in two years time for then. Um, But broadly speaking, I think if we're concerned about what people are doing uh, between uh, their off hours and if it includes bungee jumping, there's a lot worse things he could be doing. So I think, unfortunately, I would love to be able to press him on this, but I, I think we need to give him a pass. 
Daniel Perry, consultant, Summa Strategies. Daniel, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. You too. Take care, Scott. Yesterday, Elon Musk's lawyers sent a letter to Twitter saying, you know what? Actually, we'll do the deal at the agreed upon price of $54.20 a share. And as long as you, you know, drop the litigation, we're good. Um, and Twitter is probably going to accept that because that's what they're going to court to get anyway. There you have it. So this deal was on. He was interested in Elon Musk buying Twitter. Then it sort of went south. Then there was a lawsuit. And now all of a sudden, uh, here we are. Uh, and, and it seems that this may have a happy ending or, or maybe not. Who knows? Uh, to talk about that and the contrast of his projects with NASA, let's bring in Daniel Ives, Managing Director of Equity Research with Webb Bush Investments in the U.S. And is with us now. Daniel, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Great to be here. Thanks. Daniel, I, th- I found this very bizarre today because, you know, on one hand, we're covering the story of uh, SpaceX and NASA working together and, you know, venturing up into the space station with a Russian astronaut on board, then off to the moon eventually, and then Mars and what have you, and these projects, uh, obviously his involvement in uh, electric vehicles. And then the other, on the other hand, he's got kind of this goofy thing going on with Twitter that just doesn't seem to be of relevance. Is this just a genius at work? Look, I think this is an example of a genius that basically got into a bad deal. And hmm. I think when when you look at Twitter, you know, he, he got cold feet. There was a scapegoat ultimately in terms of the bot issue. Then this was going to Delaware court, and basically the writing was no wall. He was going to lose. So we had to basically go forward with the deal. Now Twitter still hasn't officially accepted because they're snake bitten. And Musk right now stands to really be the loser when it comes to his Twitter deal. Was it, Daniel, and correct me if I'm wrong, but initially weren't those at Twitter not interested in this at all? And then all of a sudden they were. Yeah, well, I mean, part of the issue is that Musk is paying $44 billion for an asset that's probably worth $25 million. I mean, he's paying, I'd say, over 50% more than the fair value. That's why there was no other bidder around. The board had to accept it. But now, it's if you look since April, it's been this sort of roller coaster, what I'll call is an, almost a, a Twilight Zone episode. And now, of course, Musk looks like he's going to own Twitter by next week. Why the devalue in Twitter since this initial offer? Well, Twitter has always been, in in some ways, just a you know an uphill battle to monetize. It's been a tangential social media play relative to the likes of Facebook, even Snap, TikTok, of course, and that's been the biggest problem. So, if it's not for Musk today, Twitter stock's probably sitting at twenty five to thirty dollars. Instead, it's getting bought fifty four twenty. And, and I think that, I, I think for Musk, he ultimately had buyer's remorse, but once he signed that deal, now he's mm. going to own Twitter. And that's part of the problem, especially in a market that's dramatically changed since it's all started, especially when it comes to debt financing. I remember even before the days of Donald Trump, though, a lot of people were saying with all the other social media platforms, whether it was Instagram, this, that, or the other, that Twitter's days were numbered anyway until Donald Trump jumped on board. Is it a viable asset? Well, the best thing that ever happened to Twitter was Donald Trump. 
Yeah. You, you just go back. I mean, that really revitalized the platform. The biggest problem for Musk is how do you monetize it? it, it, it this isn't just going to be mm. a toy that he plays around with. It's one thing as a user. Now he's going to own the platform. And I think he's also, I think it's also almost devalued the brand over the last four to five months. This has all gone on in terms of the bots. That's been an issue for advertisers. And now, of course, there's a lot of questions in terms of must freedom of speech and everything else, what he's going to do with the platform. Uh, that was my next question, but I'll hang on. And we'll come back to that. Without Donald Trump, is this worthless or worth less? Look, I think when you look at the Twitter platform the last few years, you know, it's really about monetization. And Trump aside, you know, I think what Twitter has proven is it's a relevant platform. The problem for Twitter has been monetizing it. And that's, look, and that's really been the big issue, you know, if you look with, for, for Twitter. And that's why Musk paying $44 billion for this continues to be, in my opinion, one of the biggest head scratchers I've seen in 22 years covering tech stocks. How, uh, how are other social media platforms monetizing it better than Twitter? Well, when you look, yeah, when you look at Facebook and, of course, TikTok and others, massive digital advertising business, engagement is significant, and also content. You know, Twitter, despite all the noise that it makes, it's about, it's about monetizing. And that's, and that's really been the biggest issue for them. Is Musk going to turn that around? Look, the reason Musk is the richest person in the world today is technology success. It's mm. unparalleled. Tesla, SpaceX. Twitter's a whole other animal. So what does he do next? Does he look for a buyer? Does he try to do something innovative with it? Well, I think he likely is going to try to turn this into, I'll call almost a super app, which they have in China, you know, in terms of from an e-commerce platform, from a social media, trying to make this into much bigger than it is today. But that's easy to write in a tweet. It's hard to actually do. So I think they're going to look to monetize this. They'll have to cut costs. But it just comes down to, like, this is just a bad deal. There's no way to sugarcoat it. And now it looks like, you know, by next week, he's essentially going to own a house he doesn't want to live in. What are we using this for? What is the purpose? What uh, you know, have we, as we've seen all of the social media platforms, where is where is Twitter? What is its purpose? What are we using it for? Well, I think Twitter, look, from a reach perspective, it's significant globally. I think the engagement has, you know, I, I'd say especially, you know, globally, it's been a, a strong platform. The biggest problem is that it's about monetizing. How is Twitter monetized? And I think Twitter has has strong reach, but but strong reach doesn't ultimately monetize. And I think that's going to be the challenge for Musk when it comes to Twitter, as opposed to Facebook, TikTok, and other business models that have much more defined ways of monetizing. Right. So as a platform, that's one thing. What about as an investment? What does he do? Does he just take the loss? How does he fit this into the world of SpaceX and, and, and you know, electric vehicles and whatever else he's involved in? 
Yeah, and it doesn't really fit. I mean, when you think about Boring Company and, of course, Tesla and SpaceX, I mean, this is the, you know the, this is a whole other situation from social media. I think Musk is going to have to get experts in social media to ultimately run the business. I think he's going to have to go through a massive transformation. And then the bigger problem, like you talked about SpaceX, it's about juggling all those balls. It's key man risk. And then I think that's, that's been a concern for Tesla, you know, in terms of the stock, because Musk is, is obviously key and central to the Tesla story. Uh, many have said uh, if you're investing, you got to take the emotion out of it. Did, did Elon Musk's ego get in the way of this? Oh, 100%. I think it became emotional uh, with the Twitter board. He knew he was vulnerable to an acquisition. He acquired it. He paid a price no one was within miles of. And then ultimately woke up one day and be like, hold on, what am I doing? Am I buying this? No. And then the buyers are more set in. But legally, he basically, he went over the invisible line once he signed in waived due diligence. And now the Delaware court still is active going into October 17th. That's why Twitter's board, as of right now, still has not accepted it. Because they're snake-bitten, and I don't see them going to any candlelight dinner with Musk anytime soon. So <laughs> I think there's still some twists and turns ahead uh, in this uh, Musk saga. Daniel Ives with us, Managing Director of Equity Research with Webbush Investments in the U.S., talking about the Elon Musk and Twitter deal going one way or the other. Daniel, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Loblaws and a Silicon Valley startup have announced the launch of driverless box trucks to deliver select online grocery orders for Loblaws PC Express service. These are the uh, small trucks you see going around and dropping stuff off uh, to various uh, grocery store customers. The drivers will be there to take over if something uh, goes um, astray. Um, and they've been testing this for a long time. 150,000 autonomous deliveries with a safety driver on board have been made since January of 2020. Uh, they have now been cleared to travel these driverless trucks on fixed, repetitive, predictable routes uh, from the Loblaws distribution facility to five PC Express locations in the greater Toronto area. They will run seven days a week transporting a variety of goods. To talk more about all of this, Bilal Farouk with us, Ph.D. Associate Professor of Transportation Engineering, Canada Research Chair, Disruptive Transportation Technology and Services. This is all at Toronto's Metropolitan University. Bilal, thank you so much for the time. Hope you're doing well. Thank you very much for inviting. And, yes, I'm doing well. Uh, I hope you too. Yeah, so far so good. Boy, Bilal, we've talked about this for a long time. It's been going undergoing uh, testing and such. How significant is this announcement today, or is this just another in the long line of where we're heading? I, I think it's pretty significant uh, in the sense that it shows the steady performance increase that uh, that is coming along the uh, AV development and how uh, you know, a different testing has been done and how it's been improved uh, to a level where um, companies feel confident to deploy these sort of uh, technologies um, for commercial uh, activities um, at scale and in, in areas like uh, Greater Toronto and Hamilton area, uh, where the conditions are much more challenging than, uh, let's say, um, Arizona or uh, California, sunny California, where uh, you know, uh, uh, issues like snow or issues like uh, 
um, harsh weather conditions are not uh, uh, majorly at play. How do you convince a government that this is safe and you've done all your research and, and that this is safe? Because this is pretty revolutionary. Well, so you, you, you have to show data. You have to show your, your success rate in, in terms of uh, identifying edge cases, identifying uh, uh, all sorts of uh, um, hazards that are possible, uh, and you have to show that uh, on, a, on a longitudinal data uh, in terms of uh, that you are able to do that um, time after time uh, with a great, a great success rate. Uh, and uh, it's a very difficult task. Our, our um, uh, regulatory organizations like MTO, MTO and so on, uh, they, they, they are pretty rigorous in terms of uh, the evidence that they need to certify these sort of activities. Uh, and if, um, if they have done so, uh, I mean, it shows, the, again, the progress that uh, uh, AV technology has made, uh, and it, 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 it's a significant milestone. How, how long before we're seeing the driver not there, that they're actually driverless vehicles? Uh, it, that's a difficult question, actually. Um, so, again, there, there, there are tons of uh, complex situations that, that, that may arise. Um, and and uh, uh, at the moment, uh, you know, it's, it's difficult to, 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 to ensure that all those situations can be automatically managed. Mm. Um, I, I, I think we are a bit far from that. But, uh, you know, as uh, uh, new, um, uh, you know, uh, training data is coming in from these real applications, uh, I think uh, in future we will be more confident to, to, to put a timeline on it. So um, at this point, obviously drivers are um, in the vehicles. Many will add, and I'm just playing devil's advocate here, why, why do this if you still have to have drivers on board anyway and it doesn't look like you're going to see driverless vehicles anytime in the new, near future? Is this not a redundancy? Oh, well, I mean, so... so uh, again, that, that it comes back to that point that you know there there are uh, so many situations that come in, and uh, your AV technology, your automation technology, uh, it may uh, not be able to handle uh, those situations. And mm. for those sort of situations, you would need a backup. Uh, and uh, and I think that's a precondition for. Uh, these sort of uh, um, commercial operations, uh, um, uh, their acceptance to 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 be running uh, on uh, um, on our province's roads. Uh, what about public acceptance about this? I, I mean, are people okay with this? Are people fine with this? I mean, we heard recently somebody who may have had, I don't know if this is true or not, or just something we saw on the Internet, but, you know, somebody who is sleeping at the wheel of their uh, automated vehicle uh, going down the road. What do we have to do to convince the public this is all okay? Well, so... Um, in this particular case, it's it's a it's a very well defined, uh, controllable case where um, you know a, a commercial entity is delivering food uh, with with AV and um, uh, you know groceries in general, and and uh, they are doing that in very controlled sort of mm-hmm. uh, circumstances. Uh, so 
in in such cases, um, you know, you expect that the drivers are responsible and, you know, there, there are consequences and so on. Uh, so um, in, in that case, the public should be pretty confident that, uh, you know, um, in general, the uh, AV operations, uh, they, they, are, they are safe. And if there is some anomaly, uh, there are drivers uh, who can take back control and uh, they are there. They are trained uh, for taking back control and, and stay uh, attentive. Uh, so in that context, I think the public should be pretty confident about it uh, as eventually uh, these technologies uh, would become more mature. They would result in uh, more safety, uh, more efficiency of the network. Uh, uh, it, these can be programmed such that um, uh, the, the, our transportation networks are, um, are being used in more efficient way and that can result in reduced congestion, reduced greenhouse gas emissions. So there are there are tons of benefits that can come beyond safety, and the public should be very, uh, you know, um, upbeat about it. Well, Al Farouk with us, Associate Professor of Transportation Engineering, Canada Research Chair, Disruptive Transportation Technologies and Services, Toronto Metropolitan University. Fascinating issue, Bilal. Thanks so much for the time. Good luck. Thank you. Bye for now. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, we've certainly seen in a post-pandemic world uh, employee shortages. Uh, obviously, there was one time when a lot of people were uh, found themselves unemployed. Hospitality industry, service industries, frontline workers. Uh, and now, as things are... Uh, lifting restrictions are lifting and slowly things are returning to whatever the new normal is we're still seeing massive shortages of employees in virtually every industry and it seems like it's happening uh, right the way across the country what's driving all of this locally what can we do locally let's bring in armin yalnizan uh economist and atkinson's fellow on future of workers and is with us now armin thank you for your time i hope you're doing well i'm doing great thanks for having me scott so is every Canadian centre experiencing this sort of shortage or are there situations that are unique to Hamilton? Oh, I I bet there are situations that are unique to Hamilton, but generally speaking, it's coming to a neighbourhood near you, this labour shortage mm. problem, and it's not unique to Canada even. It is something that is happening wherever there was a baby boom in the wake of the Second World War. These people are now graduating into the over 65 category and a bunch of them are retiring. Some of them are still working as young olds, uh, but they, you know, we're not going to have a lot of people uh, on deck to do the work that these people were doing until very recently because the population of people aged 15 to 24 is smaller and the population aged 55 to 64, the people that would naturally step into the shoes of the people retiring, that's actually a smaller group of people too in Canada. And actually more people are taking early retirement from that group, especially more women than men, than we anticipated. That's probably because there's more nurses and teachers that are burned out in that category after mm. two and a half years of pandemic and they have a public pension they can rely on. 
Many are asking where they went, and, and you've, you've brought up retirement, and we'll come back to that. Many are asking where they have gone, what they are doing, because we talked about the Great Reset and people changing and whatever, but if they're going to another job, another occupation, is that not going to show up somewhere in these stats? Is retirement really having the biggest impact on all of this? It is, but also, I mean, you did a really good job of explaining that uh, people are going elsewhere. And in fact, the stats are showing that more people are working than ever before, 14% more jobs than there were when the pandemic hit. Every age group, including the olds, uh, people aged 55 and older, uh, have a higher employment to population ratio. That means a higher share, including those that are young, 15 to 24, higher share of every age group is working more and people are working longer hours and we're seeing the highest level of vacancies to unemployment. That ratio of how many people, how many job openings are there and how many unemployed people are there? We're getting close to one one on one uh, in Ontario. It is below one on one. That is uh, less than one unemployed person for every job posting in BC and in Quebec. We're getting close to that in Ontario. And don't forget the people that are unemployed don't have the same qualifications as the job postings. So it's tight, tight, tight everywhere. And the major phenomenon is demographics. But the minor phenomenon is the pandemic has made a lot of people sick and has burnt Mm. out a lot of people. Mm. Uh, So people have left the labor market or looked for uh, more ways of being able to do safer work at home. And those opportunities also exist. Uh, and we, we saw this quite quickly as things started to move back after the the, the global pandemic. Uh, we certainly saw the shortages uh, and such, and, and the unemployment rate uh, drop very, very low historically. And this is all relatively new for us. What happens when this becomes the norm? Oh, great or, question. Or, ex- or extends beyond a short period of time, per se. Okay, so Scott, you have named the challenge of our generation because we've Mm. gone through four decades of basically labor surplus. Yeah. Because the world's largest cohort of babies graduated into the labor market in the 60s and 70s and now are leaving the labor market. And, you know, it wasn't just men that entered the labor market. Women thought they were just as good as men. So we had a huge swelling of uh, available workers in every country around the world that had a baby boom. And now we are looking at decades of not having enough workers for the work that needs to be done. Um, We're not seeing massive waves of technological change displacing workers as yet. It might Mm. take 10 years, 20 years for that to uh, come on board. Countries like China are talking about not having enough workers, for heaven's sake. You know, that's because of their one-child policy in the 1980s. So they're quite a bit behind us. But if they're worried about not having enough workers, we should be sweating bullets. And we have done no planning. We have not planned for this moment, which we knew was going to come in healthcare. We have not planned for this moment, which we knew was going to come in skilled trades. So it's like, yeah, uh, this is the slowest moving train wreck on the planet. (laughs) It's been coming at us for decades and we're not ready for it. Boy, is that an accurate analogy. So what will the immediate future, and by that I mean five to ten years, look like? Because sooner or later, and you know, you got to think for the younger generation, meaning those in school are just coming out, this has got to be a pretty exciting time. Honestly, be the, the world is their oyster in a way that it yeah. hasn't been workers. Uh, we haven't seen this kind of bargaining power since the early 50s. 
Mm. Right. And it was the early 50s where we saw a real swell, the latest um, swelling of unionization, the creation of every job, a good job in manufacturing. That sector was not a great sector to work in, but that's the sector that ended up creating the backbone of the middle class of the early 70s. So we have an opportunity, actually. We look at this as a, like a terrible problem, and it is for employers, but for workers, it's a tremendous opportunity to actually negotiate for better and in so doing, you know, if we can make more jobs, good jobs, uh, we could actually be building the middle class, though there will be a backlash to that for sure, because everybody wants cheap and cheap buys cheap. Good point. Armin Yalnizyan has been with us, economist and Atkinson Fellow on the Future of Workers. Fascinating discussion, Armin. Uh, we hope to have you back. Thanks so much. Be well. It's my pleasure. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. We certainly uh, know, and we were talking about uh, last week, uh, Russian President Vladimir uh, Putin uh, signing laws, formally uh, taking over four Ukrainian regions, uh, making them, reclaiming them for Russia. Uh, obviously, uh, many saying this is just all a sham. Uh, there's no legality to any of this. And then we hear that Ukraine's going back in and reclaiming some of these areas is it different now because under russian uh under russian law these are now russian territories so instead of ukraine defending itself it's now moving into russia is that the reasoning behind all of this let's bring in dr jack cunningham phd program coordinator at the bill graham center for contemporary international history in trinity college and the monk school university of toronto and with us now jack thank you for your time hope you're well i am scott hope you're well too so far, so good. Thanks so much. So these regions have been annexed, and then Ukraine is going back in and putting their flags up. How does this change things? Well, the referenda that uh, that Mr. Putin sponsored have absolutely no legal validity. Uh, they might have had some political plausibility, but for the fact that uh, the, the Ukrainians are reversing the, uh, the facts on the ground. They're going in. They, uh, the Russian front line has... Uh, has begun to crumble first in the northeast, then in the south. And uh, Putin is faced with massive defections from his uh, from his forces. Uh, young Russian men of draft age are fleeing the country at, a, at an astounding rate. Uh, and nobody seems to take these annexations seriously, except maybe Roger Waters. And I don't know if anybody <laughs> takes his political musings very seriously anymore. Uh, so, um, what is Putin's reaction to now, you know, annexing these for his own political gain and now, uh, Ukraine saying no and putting their flags up? What's his reaction to, uh, Ukraine calling his bluff? Well, he's, he's responded in his, uh, most recent press conference by saying that, uh, Russia will restore order in these annexed territories, which is, uh, which is code for uh, he's going to try to uh, push the Ukrainians back out again. Uh, it's not surprising uh, that he would that he that he would do this since the uh, the Russians have uh, have made a bit of a fool out of him on this occasion. Uh, the Ukrainians have made a bit of a fool out of him on this occasion. So the fact that he has claimed these, you know, at least in his own mind, these four regions, and now if Ukraine goes in, is that now his territory? So his response can be different now. He may think it is. Under international law, it isn't. Uh, and as, uh, as a matter of political reality, it, uh, it isn't. Uh, 
one of the things that's uh, that's striking is just how little credibility uh, all of his claims on uh, surrounding the referenda and the annexations have uh, have met recently. Uh, we talked uh, last week about the 300,000 troops being called up, people actually leaving Russia. Where is that now? Is that still happening? How are Russians reacting to all of this, including territory that they apparently retook that now they've lost again? Yeah, it's, uh, it is continuing, and it's not looking good for Putin. A very good piece by uh, Michael Kimmage in uh, Foreign Affairs said that uh, Putin has now broken the contract that he had with the Russian public. He promised him a return to glory and a return to great power status, but without it really costing anything. Now the butcher's bill is coming due and uh, body bags are coming back home. He's, uh, he's, uh, he's mobilizing, uh, trying, trying to mobilize the Russian population and understandably it's not going down well. Is this his excuse that he needs to use nuclear weapons or is that just still a threat in your mind? I think that is a, a threat designed to deter the West from uh, further uh, further actions to uh, to help Ukraine. He's uh, he is a somewhat impulsive and erratic individual, which means we can't predict what he'd do. But I don't think he would uh, willingly uh, initiate uh, nuclear hostilities. He's he's impulsive enough that he could stumble into them. Well, that's sort of my next question, Jack. If this, if he doesn't use nukes now, when is the perfect time to use them? This many would think if he was going to use them, he would use them now. If not, when do you use them? Well, that's that's a very good question, and I think your uh, your premise is correct. These are these are the circumstances under which, if you were going to uh, threaten nuclear hostilities, you would do so. And he's been uh, he's playing at cage. I mean. Uh, uh, a, 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 a post-nuclear hostilities uh, world is not one where he would cut the uh, the glorious figure that he wants. What shoe drops next, Jack? Well, one of the things that's, that's, that causes me some concern is uh, the OPEC cutback in, in oil production, because that makes it uh, easier for Putin to continue financing the war, and it uh, stokes inflation, war-related inflation, Throughout the uh, the Western economies, it's uh, it's a bit of a, a a setback on that score, especially since uh, President Biden, in particular, invested a lot of time and effort in trying to woo Saudi Arabia, and the Saudis have gone along as uh, Putin's lapdogs on this occasion. Uh, we remember uh, the Nord Stream pipeline and the issues with that, uh, obviously yeah. shut down and then explosions there. Any more on that? Any closer to finding out who did this? I haven't seen anything uh, to confirm the, uh, any, of the, any of the various theories that are out there. And uh, I, w- I think it's going to be a while before we get a, a reasonably com- complete and, uh, and, and impartial investigation. So does this not mean with holes in that pipeline that there's no way for Russia to now reverse its situation? Hasn't it itself taken one of its own options off the table if, in fact, they did sabotage, uh, sabotage it? Well, it would, that, would, uh, that would be the case. But, uh, again, Putin is not the master strategist we tend to think he is. He's a creature of resentments and, uh, and impulses, and uh, some of them are... Uh, are contradictory to what he would do were he, in fact, the cunning strategist of legend.
Uh, way back when the Russian invasion of Ukraine first happened, one of the issues on the table was Ukraine uh, becoming a part of NATO. Uh, President Zelensky of Ukraine was saying, no, that's not on the table. We don't need that. That's not what we're looking for. Now, all of a sudden, there's chatter of them joining NATO. What has changed? Is this a possibility? I don't think it actually matters a great deal whether uh, Ukraine is formally admitted to NATO or not. Uh, Henry Kissinger, for example, has said that formally or not, uh, Ukraine is part of NATO in terms of the geopolitical alignments. It is increasingly aligned with the West. We are increasingly supportive of its uh, of its efforts. So if uh, if uh, if it's not uh, if it's not actually in NATO, it's got the uh, the next best thing. What do you see happening? And I know you don't have a crystal ball, Jack, but in the in the ne- in the short term, in the next few weeks. In the next few weeks, I expect we'll see continued military reverses for uh, for Putin. The momentum is with the Ukrainians, and uh, and they seem to be playing uh, a not uh, a, a a a in some ways rather weak hand, uh, surprisingly well. Uh, uh, are you waiting for something to happen here? How long can Ukraine keep this up? Can they win this? It largely depends on us, on how long we continue to stand by them, continue to support them, continue to make good their uh, their military deficiencies. Uh, George Will had a very good column this morning suggesting that the West should be sending them uh, aerial uh, unmanned aerial vehicles or drones, which would work very nicely in conjunction with the artillery they've got. They've got rockets that have the range and accuracy required to take out Russian artillery sites, uh, drones would allow these to be identified and targeted in real time. So that uh, that could be a game changer if it materializes. And a bipartisan group of congressmen has uh, has urged President Biden to supply that weapon. I'm hopeful. Dr. Jack Cunningham with us, program coordinator at the Bill Graham Center for Contemporary International History in Trinity College and the Monk School, University of Toronto, or University of Toronto, talking about the latest in the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Jack, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. You too, Scott. Take care. Scott Radley joining us now from the Scott Radley Show. You can hear him coming up after the 6 o'clock news and also read him in your Hamilton Spectator. Scott, it is great to have you here. I can't wait to read this to you. I'm sure you've already heard it and hear your opinion. Uh, This is from Tim Hortons in a press release from their media relations. We've communicated to Hockey Canada on many occasions that the organization needs to take a strong and definitive action before it can regain the faith and trust of Canadians. We're deeply disappointed in the lack of progress Hockey Canada has made to date. We have officially informed Hockey Canada this week that we have pulled out of men's hockey programming for the 2023 season, including the men's World Junior Championships. We continue to fund the Canada's women's and para hockey teams as well as youth hockey. What does it mean, Scott, when they're just doing the, the men's hockey program? Should they have done everybody here? It's a good question. Uh, as you were reading it, I mean, I had heard it sort of, I've been working today and I had heard something about this, but I hadn't heard all the details. Um, it, it's a good question about you don't want to hurt the sports that don't necessarily have the money, but can you really make your mark and make your point by being half pregnant as mm. it were? I, I don't, I don't, I mean, Quebec's uh, a provincial hockey association has said it's not going to be paying dues to, um, to Canada, to hockey Canada. Now. And I believe Ontario, I believe Ontario, Ontario has also yeah, and yeah. Ontario talked about that today too. So, 
the, the amazing part about this story and, and, you know, for people who don't know all the details, it's okay. It's hard to keep up with all the details. There's so many of them, but hmm. um, it, it seems as though the only people in this right now, almost across the country who don't see how this is playing are the people who are working for hockey Canada. Yeah, really? Like true. I mean, truly, I'm not being ridiculous. It's, yeah. it's like they've in, wrapped themselves in a little cocoon and they're only listening to themselves. It's, it's almost like you're a president or a prime minister and you've surrounded yourself by people who always go, Oh yeah, you're doing great. You're doing, fantastic. we were talking about, we were talking about this with the school boards not that long ago. I mean, we were surprised that they could even make these decisions and think they would fly. But, but if you only listen to voices you want to listen to, like this is the risk always of surrounding yourself with yes men, as we used to call yeah. it, or yes women. Now, um, y- you need to have people around you, no matter who you are and how powerful you are. You need to have people around you who will feed you honesty. And the problem is when people get, and I don't need to say, and this is really obvious. I, I feel like I'm patronizing people by even saying this, but when you get into these positions where you become so powerful, it seems as though the first thing that you want is for no one around you to tell you you're not doing right. Yeah. So it's, but that's what they need. They need. And I would have thought Scott by now with all these hearings and everything else, even if you're in this bubble, that noise would have broken through, but apparently still no. Uh, That being said, uh, Tim Hortons is doing this. What about other corporations? Why haven't they broken through that bubble? Well, they did. I mean, remember, if you go back to the World Juniors that were held in the summertime, I don't think there were many advertisements on the boards. I think there were almost Mm. none. Uh, That was not, I don't think, a coincidence. Uh, And this is, you know, these things oftentimes take one. And then all of a sudden someone else goes, oh, well, I guess, you know, we can get out too. And then you start to get the pressure. And I'm trying to think right now of what the thing was recently. There was another one like this where um, a whole bunch of organizations all decided to pull out. It was in sports. And for the life of me, I'm just drawing a blank right now, but, and all of a sudden you had this enormous amount of pressure and then the changes came and you know, will that, will this be the change? I I'm not even sure Scott, to be honest, I'm not even sure the advertising is going to be the thing that, tips this one i think it's the local the provincial organizations like quebec and ontario if all of a sudden this spreads across the country and hockey canada now has essentially no inroads into minor hockey what then is its purpose my next question was obviously how significant many people say until it hits pocketbooks until it affects the money that's when it does get attention is this what is needed to push this forward well, maybe, because again, like advertising is obviously huge, but you can always get money by getting the fees that you're getting from the or provincial yeah. organizations. As soon as the, the, that dries up, now you really have a problem because you've now lost revenue, but you've also lost all your power. So once again, I, I would say it, like if all the organizations or most of the organizations across the country and the, pro, the provincial organizations were to suddenly follow suit, what then is your purpose? You're no longer the umbrella organization for minor hockey in Canada. You're the umbrella organization. You're the, you're the umbrella without the handle. You're just sort mm. of floating there, but you don't do anything. And that, I mean, that may be more than the advertising, although that's a big deal too, but that may be more than the advertising. I would think the thing that becomes the real problem, because again, at a certain point, you have to say, what are we doing here if we aren't doing anything? 
Do you expect to hear some sort of response about all of this in the next 24 hours from Hockey Canada? No, because this has been going on for months and Hockey mm. Canada hasn't been doing anything except for one person who, who stepped down. That nothing else. I, I don't, uh, to be honest, Scott, I don't know what the thing is going to be. Like, even as we're talking about this, and I say that this may be the straw that breaks the camel's back, I don't know when that happens, though, because that happens, that has to be determined by the people in there. Somehow it has to click with them that, oh, our back has been broken now. And that doesn't seem to be getting through. And I'm not quite sure. It, it, does that arrive when they literally can't pay bills anymore? Maybe. Um, does that arrive when I, I don't know when it arrives, but I, I, it could happen tomorrow, as you say, or it could be months down the road. I, it'll happen. I'm convinced it's going to happen because you, they can't keep on like this. They just can't, they, they, they will eventually run into brick walls everywhere, but I, I just don't know when that will be. Scott Radley speaking about Hockey Canada. You can hear more of this coming up after the 6 o'clock news on the Scott Radley Show or read him in your Hamilton Spectator. As always, Scott, thanks for the time. Have a great show. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. As always, at 557, uh, we got to thank Dave and Diana, as well as the two wills, and we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. Hello, Supervisor of Hamilton XYZ Company. I will be not into the office today, as I am going to be bungee jumping from the Skyway Bridge today. Thank you very much. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.